My name is Doug, one of the pastors for our church, and I'm excited because we get to start a new sermon series this morning. Uh, For the last four weeks, we've been looking at Jesus saves. So our church just came right out of the gate, and we were saying, hey, listen, God is good, but we're not. We're sinners, but God is faithful to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Jesus saves. Now, this morning, we jump into the book of Exodus. And you may be thinking what I was thinking whenever I originally considered a sermon series through the book of Exodus. What in the world does that have to do with my life today? Maybe you saw Charlton Heston and his Ten Commandments. Maybe you grew up with a prince of Egypt, or you've heard of Moses or something. But it's like, how does any of that connect to my life? Well, here's how. The book of Exodus, it answers the most urgent, most important, most life-altering question we could ever ask. And that question is this, who is God? Who is God? There is no more important question we could ask. A.W. Tozer once wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I wonder if you and I were sitting down at Panera just getting a cup of coffee and I asked you that question, who is God, how would you respond? There's a lot of confusion today in our culture about who God is or gods or the big man upstairs or our higher power. If you were to ask five different co-workers or classmates, who is God, you would probably get five different answers. Some of them may say, God is love, or God is wrong. Some may say, God cares about you, or others may say, God doesn't give a rip about me. Some might say that God is so important, or others might say, God isn't really relevant to life anymore. Who is God? Our culture, our city, our friends and family, those of us in this room this morning, we all have different and diverse answers to the question, who is God? But if you were to sit down with an ancient Jewish person and ask them that question, their answer would surely come back in the form of a story, and it would be the story of Exodus. This story of Exodus marked and shaped God's people more than any other people. The story actually happened. It's a true story. Okay, so you got things like the Hebrews, God's people, they're in slavery, and then the baby Moses is born, and then Moses is called through a burning bush, and then there's the plagues, and then the Passover, the splitting of the Red Sea, the people of Exodus going out, and then the Ten Commandments, the Golden Calf, all this stuff happening. It's a true story. It really happened. Then after that story, the book of Exodus is referred to dozens of times throughout the rest of Scripture. It was repeated and retold countless times throughout the generations, each time answering the question, who is God? You see, there's a couple different ways that you can know about someone. One way to know someone is just to know biographical data about them. So for example, my name is Doug Stevens. I am six foot two, a little bit lanky, but strikingly good looking according to my wife. Thank you. I live in Council Bluffs, married with five kids. Biographical data, or let's try this out. This is a man. See if you can guess who this is. It's a man. He has reddish brown hair. He lives in Council Bluffs. He is married with four children, and he looks like a hobbit. (laughs) 
Eric. It's Eric, our co-planter, the guy who helped plant the church, right? Just a little bit of biographical data, and you can know a lot about someone. But if you want to know them on a deeper level, you get to know their story. You can learn so much about someone from hearing their story. What was life like for them growing up? What joys have they experienced in life? What pains have they encountered? How did they get to where they are? You can learn so much about anyone by hearing their story. That is the book of Exodus. It is an epic and true story that answers the question, who is God? So church, we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, Sean already read some of it. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Each week, we're just going to track through the book of Exodus, going a little bit further and further. And with each chapter, every segment of the story, we're going to ask that question, who is God? So we're going to look at some passages, but I'm going to try to narrate through this story. It's not the happiest of stories, but track with me, and we're just going to go for it. Let's go back to the book of Genesis before Exodus and kind of set the scene for us. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God shows up and he's talking to a man named Abraham. He tells Abraham, hey, Abraham, you're going to have more descendants than the stars in the sky. Through your descendants, you're going to bless the whole world. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. Sounds great. But then a famine hits the land where Abraham was living and they can't even feed themselves. So it's kind of a bummer when you're supposed to bless the whole world, but you can't even feed your children. They have to move their whole crew to Egypt because that's where the food is. So they move to Egypt. They survive there for about 400 years. While they're in Egypt, they multiply. Like rabbits, they multiply. So chapter 1, verse 7 of Exodus says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. These descendants of Abraham knew how to make babies, okay? It's kind of like our church on Sunday mornings. You know, you just like knock on a wall and here comes a three-year-old with wiki sticks. Look what I made, right? There were kids everywhere. And then those kids grew up and they made babies. They multiplied over and over again. And so this people who came in weak and few in number is now growing strong In great number. So the people of Egypt take notice, especially the king of Egypt who's called the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is scared of them and intimidated by them, so he uses his power to make their lives miserable. He enslaves them, and then he makes them work. It says it was ruthless work. Pharaoh is so scared that he even goes so far as trying to kill every baby boy that is born to these Hebrews, God's ancient people. The way he tries to kill them is he gets all their midwives together. Two of those midwives are named. He gets the midwives together and he tells them, if a baby is born and it's a boy, you have to kill him. Now, my wife has given birth to five children. And, one of the, and most of them were large. I'm so sorry, honey. One of the things that I've learned in the process is that midwives are some of the most fierce and faithful and strong people on this planet. They ain't scared of nothing, right? So they look at Pharaoh, they hear what he says, and then they just turn around and totally ignore him. They get honored by God, they're given families, and the people of God keep multiplying. They are blessed, they are multiplying and growing. Pharaoh just gets more and more scared until he comes to the point where he issues a law that across the whole land of Egypt... Hebrew families themselves, now if they have a baby boy, they have to go throw him in the Nile River. The Nile River was a god 
to these Egyptians. So they are essentially requiring the Hebrews to worship an Egyptian god by sacrificing their very own sons. It was horrible. It was evil. And that's just chapter 1. Things aren't going well. Then in chapter 2, in the midst of all this tragedy and all of this pain, a baby is born. And so the mom has this baby, and she thinks there's something special about him, tries to hold on to him, but after three months, has to release him. She puts him in a basket, coats that basket with some tar, and sadly releases him into the Nile River. But miraculously, that basket floats to Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, rescues the baby, and that baby grows up in Pharaoh's palace. That baby is Moses. Moses spends the first 40 years of his life living in the lap of luxury of Egypt in Pharaoh's palace. But Moses himself knows that he's not one of them. He's not Egyptian. He is Hebrew. And so Moses knows that his people, the Hebrews, are enslaved and oppressed, even though he is free and flourishing. One day Moses is out walking around and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And Moses gets ticked and on the spot kills that Egyptian. So I don't know if he had been trained in like ninja warrior things or whatever, but like he kills that guy on the spot. Within a few days, Moses is a fugitive fleeing for his life. He runs to the desert, lives there another 40 years, gets married, and does what Hebrews do. They made babies. So first 40 years of his life, he's in the luxury of the palace of Pharaoh. The next 40 years of his life, he's out in the desert. That is the first 80 years of the book of Exodus. It is 80 years of oppression for the Hebrews, 80 years of being enslaved, 80 years of taking your baby boy and setting him in the Nile River to see him drown or be eaten by crocodiles, 80 years of hating life. Then we get to chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. Read it with me. During those many days, those 80 years, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's the story of Exodus 1 and 2. Now, what do we do with that story? Or or better yet, how do we answer our question this morning? Who is God from this story? I want to give you two truths about God that I think we see in this story. You can write these down. Number one, God is faithful. Number two, God hears the cry of the oppressed. Let's just do number one first. God is faithful. Look at how the story starts and ends. The first six verses of chapter one is a list of names. And those names are the great-grandchildren of Abraham. So what's happening here is the writer is tracking back up the family tree to get to Abraham where God originally gave his promise. Remember, God promised Abraham you'll have more descendants than the stars in the sky. Through those descendants, the whole world would be blessed. So the writer's trying to tell us, hey, this is about God's people. This is about God's promise. Then go to the end of our story, chapter 2, verse 24, and it circles back to God remembered his covenant, his promise with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God remembers his promise to Abraham. The story starts and the story ends with God's 
promise. The writer's trying to tell us something. He's saying, hey guys, this is what I want you to see. God is faithful. Who is God? He is a God of his word. What he says is what he means. He won't lie to you. He won't deceive you. He won't trick you. He won't give up, give in, or walk out. If God writes you a check, it's not going to bounce. If God says, I do, it means forever. If you hire God to do a job for you, he's going to get the job done. God is faithful. That's who God is. And we say, amen. And we say, yes, preach it, brother. But here's the problem. While our story is bookended with these pointers and these reminders that God is faithful, the whole bulk of the story, the story itself is all about how terrible life is for God's people. It doesn't look like God is faithful. It doesn't look like God is fulfilling his promise. In the story, you see that God's people had taskmasters over them, dictating their every move. So God's people weren't even free. They were subject to the petty whims and the whips of foreign taskmasters. God's people had to build store cities for Pharaoh. Their pain was his gain. God's people, it didn't look like they were blessed. It looked like they were being used to make Pharaoh blessed. says that the Egyptians were ruthless in their treatment of these Hebrews. All forms of slavery are evil and terrible, but this was slavery at its worst. Beaten, bullied, and abused. God's people weren't safe or protected. They were exposed and hurt. The only thing that God's people had going for them was their ability to make babies. But even that gets attacked. So God's people can't dream about their future. They can't even survive the present. And that's going on for 80 years So by all accounts and measures, by the human eye and the human understanding, it looks like God has forgotten his promises. It looks like he has given up and walked out and just left them hanging. He doesn't care anymore. No matter what goes, no matter what God's people try, it just doesn't go right for them. It's not looking like God is faithful. So can I just honestly ask you this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a season of suffering of your own? Maybe you're not the victim of systemic genocide, but your life has its fair share of pain and its fair share of chains and its fair share of them always telling you what to do and always having to work for them. The truth is we have all had taskmasters in our lives, people who are watching our every move and exploiting our every weakness and making our lives miserable. In some way, shape, or form, we've all felt like sometimes our pain is someone else's gain. And sometimes life is just ruthless. You ever been there? Maybe there now? And here's what I think can happen to us in our lives. Here's where I think this story helps. I I think we kind of grow up and in general, we have this expectation that life should be good. Right? Life should be easy and healthy and happy. And along the way in our lives, we kind of get these doses of God, these sound bites of God. Maybe we hear a sermon on Christmas or Easter, and the preacher man's talking about how God is good and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or maybe grandma or a coworker is always telling you, hey, honey, God is good all the time, man. All the time, God is good, right? So along the way, we actually start to believe that. Maybe God is good. Maybe, Maybe God does want me to have a good life. But then we lose a job or we lose a loved one. Life gets ruthless. 
the pain begins to dominate our bodies. The checks begin to bounce. That spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend walk out and leave you hanging. Real suffering shows up and we get a little taste of what life was like in Egypt. And I think what can happen to us when that is going on is we slowly begin to believe that God just doesn't care. It's not like we're mad at him, not at first, but why bother with him? Yet grandma always said that God is good, but I'm sure not seeing that right now. Preacher man always goes on about the love of God, but I'm sure not feeling that right now. And so our answer to the question, who is God, simply becomes, I don't care. I don't care. And we try our best to keep living, to hold things together and stay presentable. But inside, we feel like we're in Egypt, enslaved in a ruthless life. And this God, who everybody keeps saying must be so faithful, sure doesn't seem faithful right now, at least not to me. And if you're in that place this morning, can can I just give you permission? Can I invite you to just acknowledge it? To be honest about that. Be honest and real with the doubts that you have. Listen, as a, as a church, we're, you don't have to come in here like happy, clappy, and chant some slogans and then walk back out like life is all of a sudden dandy. Okay? I mean, we love Jesus. We are absolutely thankful to Jesus for all that he has done. And yes, that fills us with joy. But the last thing we want to be is some cheesy slogan slingers who are dispensing cheap advice for people who aren't even looking for it, right? Let's be an honest church. And if life stinks, life stinks. And if you're in that place, I just want to give you permission. It's okay to admit that and to be honest with your doubts and your struggles. And actually, can I invite you one step further? Like if you're there and admit that, can I invite you one step further? Could you begin to imagine that maybe God is already at work in your life while the pain and the suffering is still there. Maybe a Moses has been born. God's plan of redemption for his people didn't begin with mass healings and untold riches overflowing to his people. It didn't begin with an army marching in and taking over Pharaoh. God's plan of redemption for his people began with a baby in a basket in a river. And his plan of redemption for you might begin the same way, really small. And we don't even know that he's already working. And I know that doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't remove your suffering. But maybe, just maybe, it will give you permission to cry, to groan from within and cry out to God and tell him what you're really feeling and thinking. That is the one thing that God's people held on to. Even when it seemed like God had left them and God was unfaithful, they still cried. They still asked for help. In the midst of their pain, they cried. Now, most of us, when we're in the middle of pain, what do we want most? Painkillers, right? Like when I got upended on the basketball court and I had a concussion and a broken arm at the same time, I didn't go to the ER and say, hey, listen, I just need to feel this pain. Like, this would make me such a better man. I know it hurts so bad up here. I know I'm kind of disillusioned, but I just need to, like, take this pain and become a better man. No. I was like, what kind of painkillers do you have? How can you make this go away? Like, take care of this right now. Usually in the midst of our pain, what we want most is painkillers. But sometimes what we need most is to cry. 
What we need most is to groan. And those, that crying may look like tears streaming down your cheeks or it may look like fists shaking towards the heavens. But if you're there, can I invite you and can I give you permission to cry? The truth that God is faithful, it, it sinks down deeper and it holds on stronger when you are right in the middle of your pain and suffering. This last week in Citigroup, a friend of mine in Citigroup, I, I asked them, hey, how would you describe your relationship with God? And she said, well, it is volatile yet secure. And I was like, that's interesting. Could you tell me more? Why would you describe it that way? And she said, you know, if you were to look at my story, it might look like God isn't faithful. But deep down, I know that he is. If you were to look at my story, you might say, God doesn't care about me, but I know the truth is he does care about me. That is Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Who is God? God is faithful even when it looks like he isn't. That's who God is. Amen? Amen. Let's go on. That's number one. Let's take another truth about who God is. We want to look at a particular aspect of God's faithfulness, and that's this. God hears the cry of the oppressed. God hears the cry of the oppressed. Let me kind of build this out. We all suffer in many ways. Sickness, sadness, depression, despair, darkness. And God sees all those forms of suffering. God cares about us in all those forms of suffering. He is that incredible a God that he can relate to us and care for us in all those forms of suffering. Oppression is a particular form of suffering. And oppression is some th- suffering that comes at the hands of someone else. Whether that's a person or a group of people oppressing. It's usually a stronger oppressing the weaker. So let me show you how the people of God are oppressed in Exodus 1 and 2. In these chapters, we know that God's people aren't perfect, right? They are sinners, and we know they're sinners because we know that we're sinners. Nobody is perfect. But never even once is their sin mentioned in these chapters as the reason for them being in oppression. It's just mentioned they're in oppression. They are enslaved. And God hears the cry of the oppressed. So look at chapter 2, verse 23. Look what is highlighted here about God's people. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, not because their sin put them in slavery. It just says they groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and it goes on to say God heard them, God saw them, and God knew. So the God that we meet in Exodus, the God revealed to us in this incredible story, is a God who is stirred and moved by the cries of the oppressed. He sees them, he knows them, and he hears them. God isn't aloof and disconnected. All through the 80 years of slavery and suffering, God was intimately acquainted with and personally connected to the suffering of his people. God is moved by the cries of the oppressed. That's who God is. He listens to the oppressed, he draws near to the broken, and he cares for those who are under oppression. That's who God is. But I think, if I had to be honest, sorry, like, I don't know if this pastor is supposed to do this, but can I just be real with you? I think too often I don't hear the cries of the oppressed. I move away from the cries of the oppressed. And I wish I could tell you, man, I just care so much 
And I will sit with them and cry with them and hurt with them and identify with them. But whenever I looked at this text, I was like, I just got to be honest. God hears the cries of the oppressed, and so often I don't. I'm doing just fine living my white middle-class life loaded with comfort and privilege and health. And chances are, maybe, maybe if I'm there and I'm honest, maybe the rest of us, we could all just say, let's be real this morning, like, we've probably turned down the volume of the oppressed in our lives and probably turned up the volume of the American dream. We probably have. We've moved away from the cries of the oppressed. And heres I don't think we even mean to do this, church, right? I think it's just we got so many problems going on in our lives. I mean, like, I still got student loans to pay off. And what are we going to do with our kids? And how are we going to fit them into this car? Do we need to get a different car? You know, like, at the end of the month, can we pay all the bills? Or do we need to put something on a credit card and then pay them? You know, like, there's all these problems going on in our lives. And in the craziness and the chaos of that, I shut out the cries of the oppressed. I don't want to hear the cries of the oppressed. And maybe some of you are in that place as well. But we need to be clear. We need to be honest. There are oppressed people in our church. There are oppressed people in our city. Girls and boys sold into slavery. Minority ethnicities held in contempt just because of the color of their skin. Children abused by their parents or grandparents. Babies killed in the womb. Immigrants ignored. Women suppressed by men and the poor ruled over by the rich. People are being oppressed all around us. And I think my best response, when I look at Exodus 1 and 2, and I say, who is God? And he hears the cry of the oppressed. My best response is to say, sorry, God, I don't. And I think that is step one of real change in my life. And if you're there, that's probably step one for you. If you're saying, I don't want to hear the cries of the oppressed, probably step one is just say, that's the truth and confess it. And then, as we are honest about that, let's invite God to change us. Can you imagine a church that is known for real and lasting relationships with those who are oppressed? Can you imagine a people who are shaped and formed by God's heart and his longing to see the oppressed set free, that we would have actual stories where we say, hey, this is my friend. She was enslaved, but God set her free. This is my friend. He was like mistreated, but I was there for him, and I walked through that road with him. Can you imagine your city group reaching out to the city, finding the oppressed, and bringing the love of Jesus Christ to them because that's God's heart for them. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He sees the pain of the enslaved. He hurts with the hopeless, and he draws near to the brokenhearted. I am so thankful that he does, because the American dream is only a cloak. It is a thin veil over my own oppressed heart. The truth is, I am oppressed. I am enslaved. I am lost. And without God, I'm the one stuck in my own Egypt with no hope for escape. My taskmasters of comfort and privilege and health and safety, they too would drive me ruthlessly through life. But my God is the God of Exodus. He is faithful to me even when I have been unfaithful to him. And he is faithful to you even when you've been unfaithful to him. Our God is the God of Exodus. He moves to and is stirred by the cries of the oppressed even when we try to tune them out and ignore them. Amen. This is the God of Exodus. That's how 
he reveals himself in the book of Exodus, but he reveals himself this exact same way, even more clearly, more brightly, more beautifully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You guys knew we were going to get to Jesus, right? Every Sunday we get to Jesus. Think about this. Marvel at this. In Exodus, a baby boy is born who miraculously survives the slaughter of innocent babies all around him. And that baby boy is destined to save and rescue God's people. But that baby boy named Moses grows up to kill another man and then run as a fugitive for his life. Centuries later, passed down through the generations, there's another baby boy born. And he miraculously survives the slaughter of innocent babies all around him. And this baby boy named Jesus, he's also destined to save and rescue God's people. But when he grows up, he doesn't kill a man. Instead, he is killed by men. He lays down his life instead of taking a life like Moses did. This is Jesus Christ. He identifies with the oppressed. He takes on the yoke of humiliation and even takes the form of a slave when he dies on the cross for all of the oppression that we commit and all of the unfaithfulness that we walk in. That is our Jesus Christ. He is the greater and the better Moses. So church, can I invite you to lift up your eyes to Jesus this morning? Lift up your eyes and see him. And if you're in a place of pain and suffering, then I can with confidence assure you that God knows, God sees, and God cares because Jesus Christ has been there and he's there with you now. And if you're in a place of privilege this morning, I can assure you that God is inviting you to a place of sacrifice this morning because Jesus Christ left the comforts of heaven to come and take the form of a slave, sacrificing his own life for us And we get to follow in his footsteps. This is Jesus. This is our God. He is faithful and he hears the cry of the oppressed. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.